when you know that the part you're making is going to assure that the fuel injection works or that the anti-lock brakes work or that the airbag's going to mm-hmm. work or that the bone screw they use to put you back together if then those things care. don't, all of a sudden manufacturing is a real job and it's a job you can get behind. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. The following is part two of my interview with Miles Free, Director of Research and Technology of the Precision Machined Products Association. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. You were saying you're seeing a, a lot of positives going on in manufacturing and in our industry, just judging by the amount of people that are at this conference. We've got over 100, uh, I think 110 first-timers. These are people who have never been to a national technical conference produced by PMPA. The fact that they're coming shows that the management is investing some time in them to help them connect with other experts Mm-hmm. and to grow their expertise and, and have a broader exposure than just our little parochial. This is how we do it in our shop. So I, I find that very positive indicator. Uh, we had a strategic planning meeting at the beginning of the year. One of our member companies who was participating on that told me something, and uh, I wrote it down. It was the perfect quote. He said, Miles, I've got plenty of money that I can give you. I've got no time to let you have my people. Interesting. So they're hard at it. Our shops are hard at it. We're working overtime. Our lead times are starting to extend out there. It's full. So the big problem is finding good people? Well, that's so that's one way to say it. So people say there's a skilled workforce issue, uh, can't find people. Uh, We've got uh, full employment. A lot of people would say the problem isn't finding good people. It's... I can't keep them. There's a difference between not being able to find people and not being able to retain people. The workforce is definitely the issue for us to solve when we're not losing, getting heartburn over tariffs. (laughs) You know, the Mm -hmm. last administration, I was full-time engaged on regulatory overreach. I'm not spending 10% of my time on is, regulatory is, health. Is, is this administration regularly underreaching? <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they're enforcing. I mean, I've helped a couple of member shops that, you know, came up in a routine audit or had a complaint, and you know what? They're, and rules are being enforced. 
So the Ohio, uh, the one district OSHA director. So the, liber- the liberal media is, is uh, I mean, obviously everybody skews things, but, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency head is. Those are the people that put all that poison into the river in Arizona, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those people, yeah. No, so I, uh, I occasionally have to put gas in that Honda Hybrid. And when I pull into my speedway, uh, once in a while, I actually see the OSHA director for our area who happens to live in my town. I know him. His name's Howie Eberts. He's a great guy. And (laughs) he's busy. He's busy. His people are still making inspections. They are still going through the procedure, but it's no longer what is the next, you know, surprise gotcha going to come out of Washington. Let's turn this around, because you you have a better idea of these things than anybody else I know. What regulation do they not have that they need to have? I think if they had a balanced budget and the government. No, I mean, what environmental regulation do do they need that they've overlooked? I guess I'll answer this question this way. I'm a father. I raised two daughters and a son. My son is working in a precision machining shop. He Mm. tried college for a couple years. He did okay, but it was clear that wasn't the way he wanted to go. Mm -hmm. He got into our industry. He's thriving. Of all the kids in his dorm floor, Mm -hmm. he's the one not living in the basement. He's the one not working at Sam's Club. He's the one who's not making a a truck payment because uh, on a lease. His car's paid off. Mm-hmm. It's a Honda, it happens to be, made in Ohio. <laughs> uh, Steel Auto Republic in Canton, uh, crankshaft. So, um, you know, if I thought that there were dangers in this, in this industry, if I thought, oh, these are terrible chemicals, I, I'd have waved them off. My son was doing parts washing at a prior shop. Mm-hmm. Not worried about it, not losing any sleep. I am voting with my own children I'm saying this industry is a great industry. And by the way, my son, my, my son, my namesake, I'm happy to have in, in our industry where he's thriving. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. Are you concerned about the environment? I, I am, but I have about to... the ozone layer and Not about the ozone warming. Layer. No, so, you know, so we have, you know, it's always the threat of the week. You know, Paul Ehrlich said we were all going to die because of overpopulation, and, you know, we're... We're nowhere near where Paul Ehrlich said we're going to be. And, you know, a couple years ago, it was going to be peak petroleum. We're going to run out of energy. And right now, the U.S. has more uh, petroleum assets than Saudi Arabia. We're actually able to export. So do I want to live in a good world, in a clean world? Yes. The idea of ecology, if we go back to the real root of it. The the Industrial Revolution. No. No. The word eco, ecology comes from the Greek word oikos, and it means home. So, yes, I want to live in a clean home. Yeah, now I won't look at the yogurt and, uh, the same. Yeah, oikos means home. It means home, okay? So ecology is the study of our home. Well, what is our home? Well, it's our environment. It's our planet. There's billions of people living here. We need to learn how to get along. I think if we could learn the social issues we need, the rest of this stuff is, it's just noise. Really? Really. You're not, you're not concerned about air quality, water? Uh, I, I am concerned, but you know what? 
when I was working in Youngstown at the yeah, U.S. Steel at, plant. Yeah, you worked at some dirty places. Uh, I did. And when I was working in Youngstown uh, in 1973 and 1974, the federal government came in and they had some hearings. And they talked about putting cold water fishery standards on the Mahoning River. Now, the Mahoning River has never frozen in my family's family memory. I'm Miles III. My dad's Miles Jr. His dad is Miles Sr. Is your son named Miles? He's Miles IV. In none of us, (laughs) thank you, none of us, none of us in our lifetimes had ever seen ice on the Mahoning River. It was used as a thermal dump for all the factories in Trumbull County and Mahoning County. And the Clean Water Act came in and said, we're going to have clean water, and we're going to apply cold water fishery standards to the Mahoning River. And I said, if you do that, we will have no jobs here. And they pat us on our little heads and said, well, it's important we have clean water. And there were no steel jobs. And I have a photo of the blast furnace that I was the blast furnace burden clerk on in Youngstown being dynamited in 1979. You don't think it was important to have clean water? I don't think that you can apply Rocky Mountain Coors Brewing input water standards to a to an area, to an entire area that has no chance at all of ever meeting those standards. So when did, what ended up happening to the water? Did um, it get any better? I don't know. I don't think uh, the river's freezing. I don't think anybody's fishing. And we have no jobs in steel in that. In that we lost all our legacy jobs now. There, I think there's a pipe mill opened up a couple years ago. But that valley was totally... And, and that valley is petitioning. There's a constant effort to get the Mahoning Valley added on to Appalachia so they can qualify for some more government aid. And that, to me... <laughs> That, to me, is the result of the government having these well-meaning initiatives, but not really understanding what the consequences are. Entire industry wiped out. Entire, Entire economy. Industry. Yeah. Youngstown Sheet and Tube, gone. Jones and Laughlin, gone. Mahoning Valley, gone. U.S. Steel Youngstown, gone. Uh, Al, um, so what do, people, Tyros, what, do, what do normal people do in Youngstown? Is it a ghost town? When, when I left in 1978... I had a friend uh, that worked with me at, at the centering plant, and I, I transferred to Lorraine. I, was, I got a steady shift. I was working 4 to 12. I was getting overtime. I was, I was like, wow, never laid off. I called him. I said, Ron, you got to come up here. This is Goose Lays the Golden Age. Come, come up. You can work. We'll make money, right? Well, my wife wants to stay by her family. And, mm-hmm. and I said, so what are you doing? He says, well, I'm a bank guard. Bank He's guard. a bank guard. Now, this guy had no military experience, no police training. He was a steel worker making great money, and he became a bank guard at not even subsistence wages. And that's pretty much the story of my hometown. Youngstown's a great place to be from. To be from? To be from. Where does your son live? He's in uh, Wisconsin, Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Okay, so he's... he's it's a great place to be from. But so I would say to you that in my life experience, government rules turn me into a refugee. They shut down my Youngstown plant. The Lorraine plant is closed. The Republic 
plant, you know, at one time, Lorraine, there were 10,000 souls. In 77, 78, there were 10,000 souls employed at the Lorraine Cuyahoga Works. I don't think the entire republic, which absorbed the Lorraine USDO, I don't, I don't think they have 2,000 people. Yeah, but I mean, even but with technology now and the economy now, even if the environmental regulations didn't change, it wouldn't be the same now, right? I agree. So uh, I'm not against regulations. I'm just against regulations that seem to be pretty heavy-handed. If it wasn't cold water fisheries, maybe somebody could have put in some incremental cooling before they put the water in. Maybe they could have done this. But yeah. to just say outright cold water fishery standards... Obama said, no coal. You know, what happened to the coal? I had three stocks in coal because I happened to, I, you know, <laughs> coal is great. This, this mine has metallurgical quality coal. We need that for coke and that. And all three lost. One, government regulations. Obama's war on coal. I, there went my portfolio. Thank you. Sorry to hear that. That's okay. I learned my lesson. Got to be diversified. Got to be diversified. But that was my diversification. I thought, you know, there's inflation. You want assets in the ground. This is metallurgical coal. I know that. The market doesn't know that. (laughs) But I didn't know what the Obama administration was going to do. They were going to outlaw this perfectly good asset. All right. One other thing that we've been talking about, and, and we've been talking about it here, electric cars, you know, our impression of people in the industry, in our high-volume industry, is that it's hard because we're making lots of money right now doing what we're doing. We know that we're going to have to change, but I mean, it's the same thing with selling multi-spindle screw machines. I mean, it's finally a hot market. It's a question of when, when it's going to change. What do you think? What, what are people saying? So, Noah, this, this makes me smile. This question makes me smile. So Nostradamus. When I, uh, when I joined PMPA in 2003, I started a thing called Business Intelligence Reports. And what I tried to do was take a look down the road at technologies that could affect our business, that could affect our product mix, that could you know, change, change, change our little reality. And so I did a business intelligence report on 42-volt technology. So back in the day, they'd come up with these hybrid systems, and they ran, it was a 42-volt thing. And so I wrote this report and talked about how this electric, electrified vehicle was... 42 volts is... That was the technology that they were looking at then. I'm not at all certain that the current level of of hybrids are at the 42 volt. This was the Edison light bulb of its day, right? Okay, okay. With the the cotton filament. So uh, I wrote that report and put it out and had, it was extensive research, uh, well-researched and uh, I thought pretty well reported. I had just been hired by PMPA and one or two of the shop owners that had read that report called my boss, Mike Duffin at the time, and said, you probably ought to give that guy a urine check because we ain't going to have any electric cars. And we just all kind of laughed about it. About five or six years later... People probably said the same thing 10 years ago. Right. Well, but here's the point. So like five years later, one of those people who had said, we're never going to have electric cars, drove to a meeting that I spoke at... In an electric car. In a Prius... So it's, is it full electric? No, it's not full electric, but it's electrified. I will never have a pure combustion engine car again. 
the lessons I have learned from this hybrid, you know, I got, I, I know my range. It tells me my range. When I fill up at 46.7 miles per gallon, I know I've See, got to me 700. From listening to you, it seems like maybe even more than just the fuel efficiency, it's the reading, the, aware, the awareness that you care the most about. It is. It is. But it's changed my behavior. And ultimately, that's what's important. How do we change people's behavior? And when I was in high school, the behavior was how long a strip of rubber could you lay? Yeah. And that meant what kind of gears in the back and what did you have to have in the front and what was the shifter and was it four barrel and was it Holly or Rochester and yada, yada, yada. Change it behavior. Has, it has its Change place. behavior. And uh, electric, I think external combustion makes makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. We don't have to put catalysts on every vehicle. We can have, you know, economy of scale externally. Okay, but I'm talking about with the electric cars, there's going to be a lot less precision machine parts in them, the change in the engine. That's probably true. At the same time, it's not. So when when did you graduate from high school? When did you get your driver's license? Got driver's license in 1996. 1996. So there's a few years between us. So I got my driver's license in 69, and I learned to drive on my grandfather's 1956 Buick. Wow. It had three-speed on the column, and it had the starter button was actually not on the key. It was actually under the gas pedal. And if you really? stalled the wait, car... Wait, wait. Yes, yes. Under the... Under the gas pedal. So the key was the, a, the key. Oh, there was no key. There is a key, but it didn't start the engine. It turned the engine to on, uh -huh. and then the starter switch was under the gas pedal. And God help you if you stalled up going uphill because you needed one foot on the brake, one foot on the clutch, and if you had to start the car, you needed a third foot. Now, don't make fun of me. I've never been able to. I've never learned to drive the stick. Here's my point. In 1956, there was exactly two electric motors on my grandfather's 56 Buick. One for the wipers and one for the heater. Okay. In 1996, the car that you learned to drive on, how many electric motors were there? I don't know. It was, uh, what was it? A Did you have? 1990-some Oldsmobile. Did you have power windows? Yes, we did. So you had a motor in every door. Did you have power seats? Mm, yeah, maybe. Probably a motor or two on every seat. Did you have, was there turbo? My point is, increasing electrification doesn't necessarily reduce the opportunity for us to produce parts. But the internal combustion it engine changes, takes more parts, right? It changes the opportunity of the parts we'll make. So people who think I, I'm, I'm, I'm locked onto hydraulic hose fittings, you know what? With electric assist steering, there's not going to be a hydraulic hose fitting for mm -hmm. that, right? But there's going to be something involved in that electric system, and those metallic parts can be produced by our members. Okay. So it's, it's, it's different. They so, can be produced by the members, but does this mean that there's going to be less multi-spindles sold, you think? Would it be more Swiss or so, lower um, volume? So uh, uh, our industry used to be the National Screw Machine Products Association, and those were all turned parts. Mm -hmm. um, a large proportion of our sh member shops now are starting to do milling, milled parts. Mm -hmm. In 2003, you could have probably counted the mill shops with milling capacity on one hand, maybe two. 
hmm, now people are milling parts. So the technology of our customers is going to change. Savvy shops are going to change their capabilities as well. I don't, I don't see it as a death now. I see it as an opportunity to continue to evolve our offering. Right, but people are going to have to change. Technologies, the- sure. Try to find somebody that's interested and wants to work on cam automatic equipment. It's pretty tough. Now, there are some. Yeah. You know, if, if you know how to hang out with the motorheads, if, if you can go find out where the skaters are, these are people who want to make stuff. They want to do stuff. You can find them. But, yeah, but, but they may even they may want they may be willing to work in a factory, but they still want to push buttons. Oh, some do, some some don't. You'd be surprised at how many people really love that physicality of touching and making and learning, and 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 mastering and being better. Dan Pink has a great a great TED talk, and he talks about mastery, autonomy, and purpose. I need to. I need to. Re- I've been meaning to read one of his books. Yeah. Which Dan, book should I re- should I read? Uh, well, he's got a new one out right now about time. I think it's called When. That's going to be my next read, and it's about understanding the power of time in our lives. But but he's he's talking about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And in our factories, in our shops, you, you are autonomous. You're responsible for this equipment. You're responsible for listening to the feedback, watching the feedback, looking at the part. You've got full responsibility, okay? So autonomy, mastery. You know, if you're just, I can turn the button on, turn the button off, that's not mastery. But as you learn more, you get to be more autonomous, you get mastery. You can say, you know what, I probably ought to change this insert. I'm seeing this little line show up on this part suddenly, so why don't I change this? So, and then purpose. When you know that the part you're making is going to assure that the fuel injection works or that the anti-lock brakes work or that the airbag's going to mm-hmm. work or that the bone screw they use to put you back together if then those things care. don't. All of a sudden, manufacturing is a real job, and it's a job you can get behind. And we need to do Because, I mean, I, I, you know, I go through shops all the time and people in inspection or assembly. Like, yeah, it's super important, but... So repetitive, and this is probably off the record in the podcast. Maybe, maybe it isn't. I don't know. It, so, it just, it just, it. I, I just go. God, if that, that would be like one of the last things I'd want to do. Like, look at the same thing over and over again all day. Well, people are different, and I'm not saying anybody wants to be the chief potato inspector, and and you know this potato goes there, and that potato goes there. And in leading shops, if you've got statistical process controls. You're not doing a lot of inspection. You know, your inspection is on the fly. You're producing a product. You're assuring that it's meeting the specification, and it's going. So that kind of rework mentality. I still see it all the time with uh, the magnifying glass. and. So we have, uh, in many of our Swiss shops, we actually have, <laughs> have microscopes at the machine because we're looking for features that are that small. Mm-hmm. So Nano the, manufacturing? Uh, well, it's pretty doggone close. We have we have a member company that makes parts that the best way I can describe it is you could probably put a dozen or two inside the volume held by a single grain of rice. A dozen inside a yes. single grain of rice? Yes. So you look at your eye, eyeglass screw and you say, okay, I could probably put two or three or maybe four of those in the volume of a single grain of rice. Well, imagine putting two dozen in. <laughs> So our guys are doing some really amazing stuff. 
So uh, are they going to look like the stuff we made under the Eisenhower administration? No. No. But are they going to be as valuable? You've got an iPhone. I've got an iPhone. There's shops making parts for iPhones. They're not worried about whether autos go electric or not. Right. But these automotive shops, there's some huge automotive shops that are coining money right now. They're going to have to change or else, right? Uh, You know, uh, one of the neat lessons of biology is that animals are different than plants. And as human animals, we need to respond to our environment. And I think the idea that we can be a tree that just yields money fruit with whatever it is we like to do, that that's going to be sustainable, uh, that's, that's an illusion. So are you feeling good about Trump? I am. I mean, we really, uh, you know, the more we find out about the issues in the Justice Department and the FBI and that that would have all been, you know, plastered over had the other party won, um, you know, business as usual. The guy's a salty sailor. I'm not sure I'd like my daughters to date him. But you know what? Um, he's made a difference for the American people, and he's certainly made a difference for our manufacturing shops. So if he was running for president now, you'd vote for him? Depends on who he's running against. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, it would be hard for me to honestly say that anyone voted for Trump. I think that the real issue was everyone voted against Hillary. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's the correct way to frame that. But given that that was the choice and that for various reasons why that was our choice. So did you vote for Trump? I did. I, I don't, I'd have voted for I'd have voted for Iraq before I'd have voted for Hillary. Obama versus Trump, who would you vote for? Well, that's not a fair question. I've actually met Obama. I helped uh, Darlene Miller, our former president of PMPA, on the pre- serve on the president's job council. So I've met him. He's a thoughtful guy, but he didn't do manufacturing any favors. Mm-hmm. So I consider myself an economic patriot, and I'm doing my best for the uh, 100,000 people in our NAICS code that make precision machine parts. And, uh, NAICS code? NAICS code. 332721. That's how you describe precision machining if you're in the government. NAICS 332721. N-A-I-C-S. A lot of good stuff. Yeah, about 3,600 shops. PMPA has about 440 of those. 18 billion in GDP. Uh, our shops are at a percentage. Our sales is probably double our percentage. Our shops are hitting above their weight class in terms of the NAICS statistics. Wow. Yeah. I'd love to say that it's because PMPA makes them more competitive. Uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. You could wisely counter argue that maybe PMPA attracts the leading shops. I'd be hard-pressed to say that you were wrong because we do have leading shops in PMPA. And that's what makes it such a joy to be their director of industry research and technology. It's always interesting, and it always makes a difference. And you plan on doing this for a long time? You know what? I'm 65. The government officially sent me my old old guy card. Ah, I had to go on old guy insurance. Yeah. I love what I do. I love helping people. I love working at my highest and best use, which is helping other people work at their highest and best use. So we'll see what the future brings. Sweet. 
Thank you so much. This was great. Well, I, I hope your listeners find it helpful. I'm sure I'll get a few. He's a climate denier crank letters or emails, but the uh, fact of the matter is... Um, I don't know. I just like that you keep it real. It, it is real. I mean, let's, let's look at facts and data. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing. But it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. It'll just take a second, and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.